So we have some uh, Christmas Eve family traditions in my house. And uh, having adopted three children just four years ago, we're reviewing and revisiting those traditions and regrounding them because they're important. You know, spaghetti dinner is an important <laughs> tradition on a Christmas Eve. A Charlie Brown Christmas, another must in the Crawford Hey, it's good theology. Linus is spot on when he reads Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14 and he says that's what Christmas is all about Charlie Brown every year I hear that and every year I tear up (laughs) and then we have another tradition in our household we open two gifts each one of our kids gets an ornament Cheryl's kind of giving them ornaments for their pagan tree in the future. (laughs) And uh, not just Cheryl, I mean I am too. We're both in on the whole pagan thing. Um, And then the second gift is a pair of Christmas pajamas. Which is always a real bummer for the kids because they're like, where are the toys, man? An ornament and pajamas, you got to wait for the rest. And we do that every Every year. And I, just, just Christmas Eve, think about this. My family went from five of us to eight of us. And so that's 16 presents on Christmas Eve. Pajamas and ornaments. It's a lot of wrapping. Cheryl disappears into our bedroom somewhere around mid-December and starts wrapping. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but she wraps, she spends hours wrapping. It's beautiful too. It's absolute fact that it will never look more beautiful than it does right now in our house tonight. By tomorrow morning, it's just going to be a horrific mess. It's a lot of work for about ten minutes of, of uh, absolute greed. But we... Um, <laughs> So she wrapped. Well, I had I had some wrapping to do. See, I wrap the gifts that I get Cheryl, which is about all I can take. And I was heading to the back bedroom this, this afternoon. I kid you not. I went and wrote this down because I did not want to forget exactly what she said. I'm headed back to wrap the last gift for Cheryl. And I, I said out loud to the whole family, i got to go finish wrapping. Well, Anna Marie jumps up and goes, oh, will you wrap me? Will you wrap me? And I said, sure, come on. And she goes, yay, I'm going to get wrapped. I'm going to get raptured. <laughs> I love that girl. I am going to get raptured. What a great gift that would be this Christmas. Amen. <laughs> Forget about wrapping. Just rapture me tonight, Lord Jesus. Well, Mary, by contrast, wrapped just one gift on that first Christmas, on that most holy night in Bethlehem. Let's open up and let's unwrap the gift. Take a look at it. Perhaps, again, you may have heard the story over and over and over. I came to Luke chapter 2 and thought, wow, over nine years. I'm not even sure if I've ever really taught this part of the Christmas story uh, in depth. I'm pretty sure I haven't. I look back over teachings across the years, and last year we were in Revelation chapter 12. That was a barn burner for a Christmas Eve. <laughs> and we've done some just different different things, pulling out some unique perspectives on Christmas. Well, I came to this and I thought, well, Lord, this is just so... So straightforward, what, what is there really here? And I began to study. Well, we're going to unwrap this together tonight. Because in this passage, we have the initial revelation 
in the flesh of the greatest gift ever offered to man, and that is the gift of a Savior. So Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each according to, or each to his own city. Now Luke begins with a backdrop, and it's important. These three verses set the stage for the coming of Messiah into the world, and in a way which I hadn't realized before. The New American Standard Bible that I'm reading from begins now in those days. If you read from the King James Version, the more traditional text reads, And it came to pass. I have not yet found a translation here that reads once upon a time. (laughs) Because this is not a fairy tale. This is actual. This is factual. This is historical. And yet, supernatural. And it's all rolled up into one. And we begin with the name of the great Caesar Augustus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. You see, Caesar Augustus was emperor at that time of all the inhabited earth. A great and powerful man. A man whose story is fascinating. He would rule over Rome from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Caesar Augustus, he was born to Gaius Octavius, 63 B.C. His great uncle was Julius Caesar. And when Caesar was assassinated in 45 B.C., lo and behold, they open up his will and discover that this Gaius Octavius is listed, his great nephew, as his heir. So he is the one who Julius Caesar determined should follow him in this position here in Rome. Now, it's important to note something about Julius Caesar. Three years after his death, Julius Caesar was deified by the Roman Senate. They said, this guy's a god. A dead god, but a god nonetheless. We're going to call him a god for all of the great things that he did. And they were also impressed with Julius Caesar. Well, immediately Rome began to get into some trouble. Because Caesar had taken the Republic and had really increased his power uh, quite a bit. A little frightening how much power he began to yield before he was assassinated. Well, then along comes uh, Octavius, or also called Octavian. He comes along and three factions explode on the scene. One is a weaker, one that gets put down pretty quickly. But the other faction is rather strong. You've got Octavian on the one hand and you've got Mark Antony on the other hand who has an alliance with an Egyptian by the name of Cleopatra. Mark Antony and Cleopatra on the one side, Octavian on the other side, and the battle and the civil war was fierce for 15 years, roughly. And Octavian's forces finally conquered Antony and Cleopatra's forces at what is called the Battle of Actium. Mark Antony and Cleopatra both committed suicide. And from that point forward now, Octavius is in charge here in Rome. The Senate, so impressed by him, because this guy was smart. This guy was incredibly shrewd. In fact, he came up with a way of increasing his stature, and the way he did it was give all authority back to the Senate. In a very shrewd move. He abdicated his authority and said, we are a republic, let's give it all back to the Senate. You have all power and all authority, with some caveats in the bill. (laughs) That he would rule about three-fourths 
or have complete immediate control over three-fourths of all the territory of Rome. Oh, the Senate had, you know, the, the authority. But Octavius had the power. No one saw what was really going on. The Senate, so impressed with this man, gave him a new title. They called him Augustus. And Augustus, until then, was reserved only for holy objects, or holy places, or deities. But it was assumed if Julius Caesar was a deity, well then, his adopted son, Augustus must be a deity as well, and he began to look like a god. And see if this sounds at all familiar, Rome's change began to be complete. From Julius to Augustus, it went from a republic ruled by law to an empire ruled by an emperor in 20 years. Well, that can't happen. It has. And it happens very quickly. Glorious grand empires can be turned over in a heartbeat. And that's what happened in Rome. So here is Augustus Caesar. Well, why the history lesson on Christmas Eve? Because in those days, as Luke tells us, the world had deified a savior. The world at that time looked at Augustus Caesar as the Prince of Peace, so to speak. He was the one who brought in the glorious Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, over all the inhabited earth. Problem is that Augustus didn't solve the world's problems, he just obscured them. He didn't make things better, he just did a lot of pomp and circumstance. He kicked the can down the road. Caesar Augustus, even the pagans saw it. Uh, One pagan, writing in the first century, his name is Epictetus. His parents didn't like him very much. He wrote the following. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearn for more than outward peace. Written by a pagan. Augustus was a false god. Mighty Rome was rotting in its core. And meanwhile, in the midst of all of this, a child is born in Bethlehem. A child came to this world in those days. Jesus was born to a world without peace. In these days, Jesus will come to a world still without peace. Titus 2.13 tells us that we are like Israel to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You see, Israel was looking in those days. And so, in a very similar way, the church is looking in these days. Followers of Jesus are looking for that return of Messiah. And the Bible says it's going to come. And the signs of the times are clear. We are very much like they were in the first century. We are a world desperately in need of a Savior. Well, two other rulers are noted here. Actually, one here and the other one in Matthew. Quirinius is mentioned here in verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. But we have a problem because in Matthew chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me, Herod the Great is mentioned as ruling at that time. He ruled Judea from 37 BC to 4 AD. Quirinius didn't start ruling as governor of Syria until 6 to 7 AD. And so we have a problem. 
Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod and Quirinius present us with a problem. Herod died in 4 A.D. History tells us he died of a chronic kidney disease complicated by Fournier's gangrene. A horrific, painful death. But he died in 4 A.D. Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria until 6 A.D. And the problem is that Jesus had to have been born, according to Matthew, before Quirinius took over governorship of Syria. But Luke tells us this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. How do you fit that? How do you make that work? And the cynic would grab hold of that and say, one of the contradictions of Scripture. Well, the cynic doesn't know Greek. (laughs) Originally written in Greek, the New Testament, look at verse 2 again. It says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The word first in the Greek is protos, where we get our word proto. A prototype, a first type of something. So, protos can mean first, but it can also mean, and is used in the scriptures to mean, before. And if it's translated before, Luke 2 verse 2 very simply reads, This was before the census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Two censuses were taken, and we know this historically. There were two. Augustus called for a census, and then later another census was called for in the days of Quirinius. So there were two censuses, and what we believe is going on here is Luke was saying this is before the census taken when Quirinius was governor. So this is the first one, not the second one. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 37, refers to the second census that's taken. In this case, it's, I believe, the first. He distinguishes between the two censuses. Now, these were taxing times. This is why a census is taken. And and make no mistake about it, uh, if I may just speak politically for a moment, um, a census is never about pure statistics. A census is either for power, for pride, for politics, or perhaps for taxation. And so the census was taken because Caesar wanted more money. Rome needed more money and everyone went to their hometowns to register so that we could keep track of everybody and know how many people need to be paying their taxes. Verse 4 tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who by the way was also of the house of David, who was engaged to him and was with child. I love it. Caesar Augustus, Rome's demigod, decreed his way right into God's hands. (laughs) Having no idea of what was really going on, and of the fact that 700 years prior, God had pre-registered Jesus' birthplace. He had made sure to say, through the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth for me, one to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The birthplace of Jesus Christ. About 700, 750 years before Caesar Augustus makes his decree, 
The prophet Micah very quietly slips that information out there. The the Savior, the Messiah, must be born in Bethlehem. And so when Augustus decreed this census, all he did was do exactly what God knew he was going to do. Well, that's prophecy. If you've been around here at the bridge, you know we've defined prophecy very clearly. It's not something that might happen. It's something that will happen because God has already seen it happen. He's just telling us what He knows that we don't yet know. And making it clear to us. Verse 6, While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. John tells us in John 1.14, The Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now to hear John tell that, say that, you would think, oh, this must be a wondrous thing. But when you go to Luke, you realize it's glory in a stable. It's grace in a cave. It's truth in a trough. It doesn't really seem to fit. And the truth is, no one made room for Jesus. When He came into this world, He was born as He would later live His last few years of His life. He was born homeless. They couldn't even find a place to stay that night. Even His pre-registration for birth was not at Bethlehem Memorial Hospital. His name wasn't pre-written on the rolls of the Church of the Nativity. He had nowhere to go and no one to make room for Him. And John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. I read that verse, I look around today, and I wonder how many don't even know? Especially anymore. How many are wandering the malls? or the, Most people are probably shopping online, but how many people are out at the stores, making their way through town, going to and from work? People that you've seen in the hustle and bustle of this season don't even know. No one's ever even told them really about this Jesus. And what's the big deal anyway? It's just Christians. It's just those people with that wacky religious view over there. That's exactly what John tells us. When Jesus came into the world, no one one knew. John tells us in chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own. That is the Jewish people. And those who were His own did not receive Him. You see, there was no room made for Him in the end. Nobody knew. So Joseph and Mary ended up taking shelter, most likely in the stable caves on the outskirts of Bethlehem. If you're traveling to Israel with us this March, you're going to see those caves. We're going to go to the shepherd's fields outside of Bethlehem and take a look for ourselves. But most likely caves in which the animals were kept, they were housed. Manger is not a structure, it's not a building. The manger, many of you know this, was a feeding trough made of stone. Not like the nice little wood ones you see in manger models today. But it's a stone trough. A stone feeding trough that the baby was laid in. And I just love this. I'll point it out to you. The fact that Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. And Jesus said of Himself in John 6.47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so the bread of heaven comes down from heaven into the house of bread and is laid in a feeding trough. It's perfect. It's remarkable and it's just the way God does things. It's a beautiful story. And the gift from days of eternity came wrapped in flesh. Wrapped in flesh. Human skin. Well, then we know Mary rewrapped the naked newborn in swaddling clothes. Right? So, before laying him in the manger, she wraps him up. Swaddling clothes. If you are reading the New American Standard, it just says cloths. But the word there is sparganuo in the Greek. And sparganuo literally means torn or ripped cloth strips. Which is where the idea of swaddling clothes comes from. The hills of Bethlehem were home to a special group of shepherds. They were called sometimes the temple shepherds. Because these shepherds were the ones who raised the lambs that would be offered in the daily sacrifices there in Jerusalem just six miles away. Right there in Bethlehem. Those are where the sacri- that's where the sacrificial lambs were raised. And what the temple shepherds would do is they would take the newborn lamb, and this was a precious commodity. Remember, this is not just, they're not just keeping sheep to, to shear. These are the sheep that are going to be sacrificed. These sheep have to be flawless. These sheep have to be in perfect shape. And so these shepherds were very careful with their sheep. When a little lamb was born, they would take it and literally they would swaddle it with these strips of cloth. That is, bind it real tight, and they would lay it in a manger. Why would they do that? To protect it until it was more aware. After it came out, until it calmed down following the birth. They would wrap it up, lay it in a manger where it would be safe until it had calmed down and was breathing calmly and then they could take it out and let it run and play. And that's exactly what Mary did with Jesus. And so again, the picture coming into place of a a sacrificial lamb swaddled and laid in a manger, which the shepherds did. And by the way, it makes it uh, make a little more sense why the angels will in a few minutes here tell the shepherds, this is your sign. This is a recognizable sign for you. You want to go and find a baby that's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Oh, swaddled like we swaddle, swaddle lambs. Okay, we can look. See, that's a sign. Just finding a baby wrapped in a blue blanket. Big deal. Besides the fact, what shepherd would even know? You know, that's like Cheryl sending me to a Carter's baby store and telling me to pick up something for the kids. And I'm like, I don't know. Not a clue. But the shepherds knew swaddling. They understood that concept. And to swaddle a baby and put it in a manger just like a little lamb, the shepherds would understand that. A recognizable sign. No other bambino in Bethlehem would be wrapped in such a way. And that's what Mary did with Jesus, her firstborn son. Note that too. Not only is he laid in a manger and wrapped in cloths, but before that it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. And that tells us that Mary indeed had other children. Had other boys, had other sons. Jesus was simply the firstborn. The rest would be his half-brothers by her husband Joseph. Of course, the first was Jesus, the firstborn, who was absolutely, absolutely unique born of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about His uniqueness. I I love that Luke points out that He is her firstborn Son. No other firstborn has ever been or will ever be like Jesus. He is the unique firstborn. 
Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Several years ago, I had a friend of mine ask me about that. Wait a minute, firstborn of all creation. So is that saying that Jesus is created? No. It's talking not about His creation, it's talking about His position. That Jesus is positionally the firstborn of all creation, of all people. He Himself becoming human flesh is the firstborn. That is, He has all the rights and the privileges thereof. He is positionally the firstborn. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 tells us Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's not only firstborn by position, he's firstborn by resurrection. The first person to resurrect back to life and to stay alive. Now others resurrected and then died again. You know, we've talked about Lazarus having two funerals. Bummer for him. You know, Jairus' daughter, two funerals. The widow's son, a second funeral. But Jesus, when He resurrected back to life, was the firstborn of all who would come back to life by resurrection. Firstborn by position. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So understand that not only is Jesus firstborn by position and firstborn by resurrection, but Jesus is also firstborn by recognition. Because the day is coming when Jesus does return to this planet that the people of Israel will see Him and mourn over Him as the firstborn. And they will recognize Him finally as Savior. There will never be another Jesus. There never has been. There never will be. He is absolutely unique. The only firstborn. However, I have good news for you tonight. Though you will never be Jesus, you can be like Him. By redemption. We can be sons and daughters of God our Father by redemption. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. The God who would be brother to humanity. And that is the firstborn, Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Verse 8 tells us in the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, some people have trouble with the fact that, uh, with, with the concept that Jesus' birth took place in December. You know, they, they draw off the old pagan Saturnalia, December 21st, and that's not the timing, and the church just grabbed that day to try and pull it away from the pagans, and, and that's all well and good. But for those who say it cannot possibly have happened in December because it was too cold to be out in the fields at night, let me just point out to you that in the hills of Judea, December can be warm. So it's entirely possible that Jesus was born in December. Well, I've heard he's born, you know, in the month of Tishri, like the October time frame. And I, I probably lean that way myself a bit. I'm just clarifying. It doesn't mean that he couldn't have been born in December. We just don't know. But I want you to think about the shepherds who are out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Temple shepherds or not, these guys still sat on the bottom of the socioeconomic cultural ladder. These guys were low lives. They were considered unclean by the very nature of their work. Just by being a shepherd, they were looked down upon. 
They raised lambs for the temple, but they themselves could not participate in the temple services because of their occupation. And God chose these men, these shepherds, not only as the first to see and hear the gospel message, but I believe He chose them as a picture of His heart so that we could understand something. In Genesis 49.24 says, From the hands of the Mighty One of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Isaiah 40, verse 11, Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. God is that shepherd. Shepherding His people in the same way that these lowly shepherds would shepherd the lambs. And Jesus, of course, comes in John 10 and says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He says, and I love this verse, He's talking about the sheep, and all of a sudden in verse 16, He says, I have other sheep. Now, He was talking about the sheep being the house of Israel, the Jewish people. But He says, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, that is Israel, And I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And in one fell swoop, Jesus included the world in salvation. Jesus said, it's not just about Israel anymore. I'm making it about the whole world. I want everybody to be saved. And in John 12, 32, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Now up to this point, the supernatural facets of the story have remained mostly hidden. Still somewhat of an unknown, Mary encountered Gabriel, and of course Joseph was assured in a dream, and the virgin was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But all of these things still were kept pretty close to the heart by Joseph and Mary. But now it's almost like the joy is uncontainable, and the angels just cut loose in the cosmos. Verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood among them, or before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Linus says they were sore afraid. (laughs) Which probably means they were so afraid they hurt themselves, hence the soreness, right? So they were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, that is, an army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth among peace among men with whom He is pleased. Can you even imagine the scene? I mean, it's a quiet night outside of Bethlehem until the sky explodes with singing angelic warriors. And these shepherds are stunned by the whole thing. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, When He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, And let all the angels of God worship Him. And it struck me reading it again this week that the reason why the angels began to worship in the skies was because they can't help themselves. You see, when Jesus is there, the angels worship. They love to worship. They have to worship. And I think about us. And when Jesus is there, we have to worship. We love to worship. It's not campfire songs. It's glory to God in the highest. 
And so the angels are, are singing. They can't help it. And in this glorious moment when all heaven breaks loose, it's good news of great joy to be for all people. And that's the gospel. The gospel. Good news of great joy. It's not an imposition. Right? The gospel is not a burden. The gospel is not a nuisance. It is not a hassle. You walk up to someone in the world today and say, Hey, I'd like to talk to you about the gospel. Oh, I don't need that. You know, I don't want that burden, that weight. Hey, the gospel is freedom. The gospel is joy. It's salvation. It's wonder. The gospel brings us into the life we were created to live. And to shun the gospel is to deny yourself the very freedom that God desires for you above all other things. It's all good. Great joy. And the angels clarify the gift that's given. He's the the Savior born unto even lowly shepherds. Now you might read this as they're singing glory to God in the highest. I like that. And on earth peace among men. I like that with whom He is pleased. Ooh. I don't like that. That's the part of the gospel I don't like. Because now I got to do something about it. Now I got to be pleasing to God. There is something in us, gang. And I guess it just goes back to that rebellious nature where we hear something like, with whom he is pleased, and we go, I like the first part, I just don't like the second. We sing the song, In Your Presence. Uh, which sings, Father, I am waiting. I need to hear from You. Um, to know that You are approving all I say and do. There was a time in my life I would have had a hard time singing that song. To know that You are approving? As if I need anybody's approval? And we come to the angel song and everybody gets peace as long as God's pleased with you. But if He's not, no peace. And that rebellious spirit in us kind of raises up and says, I don't like this. Literally, the language says, glory to God in the highest and peace among men of His good pleasure. Men of His good will. So let me be clear. For anyone who says, what if you ain't pleased with me? It's very simple. Would you like peace tonight? Keep His good will. Would you like to know shalom? That Jewish word for peace that is more than just a momentary thing. It's it's everything. It's all-encompassing peace. Would you like that? Then live for His good pleasure. But I want to live for my good pleasure. Well, then you're not going to know peace. And it's very simple. You see, the world tells us, live for you. Do what makes you happy. Magnify yourself. And so we do because we think, well, yeah, that's what i got to do. And we can't find peace. And we continue to strive. And we're stressed. And we're frustrated. And we wonder, why am I not? I'm doing everything for me. And it just doesn't get you there. God says, there's a way to know peace. Live for my pleasure. Live for my goodwill. Well, how do I do that? And that's the question, isn't it? Okay, now we're going to get into the religion of your church, Pastor. I want the five steps. I want the seven rules. I want the guidebook. Tell me what i got to do. I'll tell you what you got to do. 
The Jews were asking Jesus the very question, John chapter 6, verse 28. They said, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Amen. What? Well, that's so easy. Yes! Good news of great joy! Right? It's not good news of a whole long list of things you got to do. Man, just believe in Him whom He has sent. Because the thing is, when you start to believe in Jesus Christ, when faith goes to that place, suddenly life starts to change for you. Peace comes. Joy arrives. You find yourself not wanting to do the things that you thought were so important. Suddenly you're starting to find other people more important in your life than you are. Before it might have galled you, but now it fills you with joy. That's what happens when the Savior is born in you. The Savior, Christ the Lord. The free gift. When you unwrap that present, the joy arrives, the peace comes. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the Gospel. And if you've heard it for the first time, that's the Gospel. Jesus Christ loves you. He came to this world to die for you. He resurrected again, and now He says, Believe me. Believe me. Come into a relationship with me. Let's walk out this life together. Put your faith in me. And I'll do the rest. It is that simple. Verse 15 says, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, I think this is actually after they were saying, They began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as had been told to them And I can tell you this much about these shepherds. For all the dirt and grime of the Judean hills, these guys had beautiful feet. They had what the Bible would call lovely feet. Where are you getting that? Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of Him who brings good news. Look at what happened here. The Word was given first from the angels to the shepherds, but more remarkable still, now the shepherds grab the Gospel baton and they run with it. And now they're telling everyone what they have seen and heard, what the angels had already told them. Now Harold the angel is Harold the shepherd. Okay? Now he's the one... Thank you, Debbie. Now he's the one... They're the ones who are spreading the gospel. The gospel spoken by angels is now the gospel spoken by man, and that's how it works. Now it's hark the herald shepherds sing. Now it's go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And that is your task tonight if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, I knew there was a task. Yeah, but it's a great one. <laughs> To race through the hills shouting out, the joy has come, Emmanuel, 
to be like the shepherds, just telling people what we've seen and heard. The truth of the glory of Jesus Christ. The best Christmas gift we have ever received must be given. Wrapped in flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, wrapped in linen and a burial shroud, and today wrapped in glory. Thanks be to God, as Paul wrote, for His indescribable gift. Amen.